Listen to this scripture in Hebrews. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Can we consent that, that, that he is using linear speech to refer to grace? Has he ever used this term, come short, before? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are made in the image of God. But we've all fallen short of that glory. But here he says, you've sinned and you've fallen short of glory, but you can't fall short of grace. You've got to be eligible for grace. Because if you come short of grace, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no empowerment. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul said, but I worked harder than you all. You cannot be effectual. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching, discipling, and training us to say no to ungodliness. There's no discipleship without grace. So you may not be qualified for glory, but you've got to qualify for grace. God gives grace to the perfect but resist the imperfect. Is that what it says? God gives grace to those who achieve glory on their own strength, but expels those who don't. Is that what it says? Who does God give grace to? Who, what qualifies you for grace? Humility, brokenness, a loss of all confidence in your flesh, so that with the apostle you could say, I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. Skip a few chapters, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Thank you, Jesus. The Pharisee was not qualified for grace, but the tax collector was. Do you see that? Humility is what qualifies you. And humility is not an acquiescence to your problem. It is an acknowledgement and a brokenness in the face of your faults that turns to God for the solution and his grace starts to flow. So he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many become defiled. And I say that this concept is a linear concept. What is the word sin in, in the Greek, hamarkia? And it literally means what? To miss the mark. To come short. Can you agree? So what does it mean to come short of the grace of God? It means that the grace of God is deposited at intervals along a path. We sing this song. Your grace is enough, all that I need. And the original lyric said, Your grace is enough, more than I need. And my dad said, we can't sing that. He said, we can't sing that because God's grace is not more than we need. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is just barely there. So now we get a sense of how we can come short of it. 
because it's not abundant. It's not excessive. It's not more than we need. It's just enough to keep us moving down the path. I've said that grace is deposited like care packages from the sky along a path of obedience that we must walk. And the danger is for us to get caught between deposits. And what happens when we stall between deposits? A root of bitterness springs up. You get dejected when you don't keep going and believing that grace is coming. You can recall when you had grace in your life. You can recall when you sat in the presence of God and you felt His glory. You felt His unmerited favor. You felt Him smiling on you. You felt like you could do it. And you got up and you started pressing. But somewhere along that track, between deposits, your mind started taking control and said, oh, this isn't going to come. Oh, this isn't going to happen. Give up. God's grace is running out, and you know it. Amen. And your spiritual man should have piped up and said, I know. It's always running out because it's just sufficient. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. But for every trial, he will provide a way of escape. I remember somebody saying back years ago to my dad, you know, I, I just I get so nervous when I think of what could happen how I could be hurt, and am I going to have what it takes to endure persecution? He said, that's foolishness. You don't have what it takes to endure persecution because you're not being persecuted this morning. You cannot try to anticipate what God is going to give you in that crisis because the grace shows up when the crisis shows up. And the devil can defeat you before you ever enjoin the battle if he just starts talking to you about how you don't have what tomorrow needs. That's why Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't fret about your impossibilities of next year. You just walk in the grace of God today. And you've got enough to carry you through another mile until you get to that next deposit. And you say, well, how do I know it's going to be there? Because you're surrounded by people who have been commissioned as stewards of God's grace. You are in a storehouse full of grace. And they've just got to take it off the shelf and give it to you. And you say, but they're not. And I say, are you humble? Are you broken? Because he gives grace to the humble. Is that an equivocal promise? Is that an equivocal promise? He gives grace to the humble. No, it is not an equivocal promise. What is equivocal about that? Where is the mystery in that? Is that an equivocal promise? He might give grace to the humble. He sometimes gives grace to the humble. Or is it a categorical promise? He gives grace to the humble. That's how you judge your humility. You don't say, I got humble and I didn't get grace. You say, I thought I got humble, but I didn't get grace, so it must not have been humility. There's more that needs to happen in order to release that flow in my life again. Do you see the linear path? And do you see the deposits along the path? Amen. Where are you at in that walk? I remember back in 2015, I shared something that I want to share. I want to remind you again of. Some of you weren't there, so it's not even a reminder. But I said that I felt like the most unhappy people I knew were the people with the most well-formulated expectations of how their life should be. 
Tell me when that's soaked in a little bit. The most unhappy people I know are the people with the most formulated expectations of how their life should be. Because those expectations collide with reality. And you say, well, Ossie, are you saying we're not supposed to have any expectation? No, we are. We are supposed to have expectation. But what is our expectation? Is it in the what or is it in the who? I know what I have believed and I'm persuaded I'm going to get it. Old dying translation. Is that what he says? Or does he say, I know whom I have believed. We're allowed to have strong assurances and expectations, but they are in the character of God. They are in the attributes of God. They are in the Word of God. They are in the goodness of God. And they're in the dependability of God. But they're not in the what. That's how you get really tripped up. When you think God's given you a what, and it's not happening in your time. And then you get really unhappy. You walk around with that face as long as a draft horse's, moping and graceless and joyless. And when grace goes, so goes power. And when joy goes, so goes energy. And without power and energy, the devil just eats you up. You are a ready-made snack for his delight. And this, this image, this picture of a feckless Christian groveling along in the heat of oppression, it's all too often, it's all too common, isn't it? I think the prophet Jonah knew about it when he says this. He says in Jonah 2, verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, when my life was ebbing away, I realized that God wasn't faithful. Is that what he said? That got me. I liked that because I think I've seen some ebbing in my own life, in other people's lives. Are you ebbing away? Is your life in God ebbing away? Your joy ebbing away? Fading away, just drizzling out, leaking through all the cracks of doubt, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered Yahweh. And my prayer rose to him. To your temple, your holy temple. Where was his ebbing away taking place? Where does he make this comment? It's like slosh, slosh. <laughs> When my life was... I mean, he's in the guts of a shark or a very large fish. And he's talking in the past tense. When my life was ebbing away, you'd almost think it's still ebbing away. But it's not because his attitude has changed. I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer rose to him and to his holy house. Thank you, Jesus. And he says, They that regard lying vanities 
forsake their own mercy. You've heard this, those who cling to worthless idols. The word there, idol, it does not mean a statue. It means a vanity. What is vanity? It's counterfeit glory. That's what vanity is. Glory comes when a complete sacrifice, an oblation of flesh is made. Glory comes when you've done it God's way according to pattern. It fills the house and no flesh can get inside. And vanity is what is the counterfeit glory we seek from selfish ambition. Vanity is selfish is the achievement of selfish ambition. What did Solomon say? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You say, well, explain the word vain. Well, it can mean useless. But it can also mean to look in the mirror and admire oneself because they're both the same thing. They're useless. It's looking at a false god. And the devil's trick is to get you to change the glory of God to the vanity of man, to the vanity of self, and to get you to do hard, challenging things for the vanity of man instead of the glory of God. Because, Romans 1, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Your emotions shut down when you become vain in your imaginations. When you cling to vain fantasies, you forfeit the grace that could have been yours. When Jonah said that, those who regard lying vanities forsake their own mercy and grace. Who was he talking about? Some guy out in the middle of nowhere? He was talking about himself. So we can look at his life and his narrative and we can see how he regarded lying vanities and how he forsook grace that could have been his. How did he regard lying vanities? How did he cling? Do you think he went down into the hold of the ship with his hands wrapped around some statue? <laughs> There's no evidence of that. In fact, this guy hates false gods. That's kind of his modus operandi to get rid of them. Okay, so where is the clinging? <laughs> God told him to do something he didn't have the grace for, or he told himself he didn't have the grace for. God said, go do something, and he said, I do not want to do it. I don't feel like it. And why didn't he have the grace to go obey God? Because he was clinging to what he wanted to do, which was go to Tarshish. His grip on Tarshish disempowered him to do the hard thing, which was Nineveh. So the lying vanities is what I said. The most unhappy people are those with the firmest grip on how their life ought to be. They live without grace and they live without mercy. And they say it's because God didn't show up and provide, and God says it's, it could have been yours. The saddest thing that the Lord could, have ever, could ever say to me is it might have been or it could have been. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. There's could have been grace lying 
in care packages on the path of obedience. And the only thing that makes us forfeit it is our determination, our clarity, our grip on how we want it to be. Psalms, David says, I have hated those who regard lying vanities, but I trust in Yahweh. What is the opposite of regarding lying vanities or clinging to worthless idols? What is the opposite of it? I trust in Yahweh. God, it's your way. This isn't the path I chose. This isn't what I wish I was doing. But I'm going where there's grace. Hallelujah. There was fantasy on the road to Tarshish, but there was grace on the road to Nineveh. There was vain imaginations on the road to Tarshish, but there was grace and mercy on the road to Nineveh. Amen. There was fixed expectations and desires on the road to Tarshish and trouble and wasting and disaster and judgment, but there was grace on the unloved road to Nineveh. Your hands can even wrap around God's promises so as to make them something that is a possession of the flesh. Do you think Abraham did that? Do you see how as long as he clinged to his lying vanities, he kept forsaking the grace to receive the promise? When it was going to happen in his strength, it kept eluding him. But when he could trust God, even when God said, I want you to take this promise and put a knife to it, when he could trust God, immediately he received it back from the dead in a figurative sense, Paul tells us. I think sometimes it's the only way we're going to ever get God's promises is by receiving them back from the dead. Because we've got to let our, we got to die to our flesh and its desire to grab them, to have them in its time, in its way. Thank you, Jesus. We've got to die to it. Amen. And then we take it back from the dead. Oh, what a blessing. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Psalms 84 says, They go from strength to strength until they each appear before God in Zion. They go from strength to strength. That's from grace to grace. Psalms 84 and 7. Bitterness is when you get stuck between the grace deposits. You say, oh God, why is this happening? Why don't I feel grace in my life? Well, there's some options. You may be stalled. And you're not going to get it unless you press on. Or you may be isolated from, from, the, from others around you. You're going to get grace from God and you're going to get it from your brothers and sisters. The part from God is, it's between you and Him. But you can isolate yourself from your brothers and sisters. I remember, I was telling somebody last week, I remember about 13 years ago when we were expecting, did you hear that? Expecting our first baby. And when, when that child was lost... When, when she came to full term and delivered him and he died, he, he, he never took a breath there in the hospital. I would have to say that the grief we faced was one of thwarted expectation. What do you say of a mommy who's expectant? 
she's expecting. Expectation is the most powerful dynamic in something like that. And so it's anticlimactic in the worst sort of painful way. And I remember in the whole drama that unfolded there at Hillcrest, I remember they came in and, and, and put his body in my hands, asked me if I wanted to hold him. And there I'm holding is this, this corpse of this perfectly formed child. And um, my dad was there by that point. And I can hear his voice behind me saying, give him to God, son. Give him to God. Give him to God, son. And there was something in me that felt like, how can I give what's been taken? The choice to give is already taken from me. But that, that wasn't the truth. Because I could have formed an iron grip of what I deserved, of what we deserved, what my wife deserved. And if I had held on to that expectation, a root of bitterness would have sprung up in my heart, in our hearts. Do you see what I'm saying? And we had to make the choice to give, even though we hadn't make the, made the choice in the first place. And then the next, that evening, when everybody went home and we were by ourselves in the hospital, trying to sleep together in that hospital room. We had to make that choice again. And it was not easy. Will you say, Brother Ossie, I gave it. I pledged it to God. I had an incredible prayer time, and I laid it down. And I'm trying to tell you, you got to lay it down and lay it down and lay it down and lay it down and lay it down. you got to lay it down and lay it down and lay it down and lay it down. Until you don't have a hold on it, only God does. The next morning, the next week, I'm telling you, there was such a bitterness that wanted to grab hold. And I'm, I'm giving you an acute example. But I think everybody in this room has fought this bitterness in some form or another. I think he ties those things together for a reason when he says, don't come short of the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springs up. It's people who can't believe and press on to the next deposit that turn bitter. And James says you cannot take fresh water from a bitter spring. You can't take salty and fresh from the same source. You become useless when you become bitter. And when you become useless, you have no purpose, you become unhappy. You say, well, obviously the bitter person is unhappy. They feel thwarted. They give and it doesn't count. They become cynical. Do you remember when Peter said, I perceive that you are in the bonds of iniquity and the gall of bitterness? Do you remember that? Who did he say that to? He said that to a sorcerer who thought he could buy with money the gifts of God. Peter identified that cynicism, that didn't believe that the gifts sprang from love, but could be manipulated with money. 
That's cynicism. And Peter believed that cynicism was the gall of bitterness. He thought this sorcerer was bitter. And that's why he was this way. He was a trickster because he was bitter. And I remember the struggle we went through together. And it was a struggle between grace and bitterness. Honey, we don't understand. We don't know why. That does not appear to view right now. It hurts. It doesn't seem fair. But we know what we deserve. We don't deserve life. We deserve hell. And we're going to have to let this go. We're going to have to put this in God's hands until such time as it can become meaningful to us. Thank you, Jesus. And if Jonah had done that with Tarshish, <laughs> you see, I think he wanted to go to Tarshish. I think he had a vacation planned, honestly. I think he had a date set. I think the camper was loaded, and they had a park reservation in Tarshish. And the kids were excited, and a burden came on him one night. He's like, honey, I'm going to have to go to Nineveh instead. And his wife was like, Jonah, the kids are so excited. We were going to go to Tarshish. Remember, it's July or August, and this is summer vacation. It's important for the family. You can almost picture it, can't you? I think that's what was happening. I don't know if it was a vacation, but he really wanted to go. Maybe he wanted to get away from his family. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he really wanted to go to Tarshish. That's why he couldn't find the grace to go to Nineveh. You can't have the grace to recover from a tragedy until you let go of Tarshish, until you let go of what you wanted that God may even have wanted to give you, but you cannot find the grace to pick up this path until you've laid down that one. Okay, Lord, I give it up. I put it in your hands. Amen. If you want to give that back to me, I'll take it, but I put it in your hands. I don't want to see unhappy Christians. I don't want to see disgruntled Christians because I know those Christians are tempted to look sideways at me and say, oh, you've got the victory only because you've had it your way. I want you to know I have not. Nobody up here has. Nobody out there has. None of us have had it our way. And I could be disgruntled and live my whole life comparing God's incredible grace to my stupid expectations. Or I can say, Lord, life is a mystery. It's an unfolding surprise. And the only thing that's certain is your goodness. And I'm going to know whom I have believed and let the what be a shock around every corner. <laughs> and take it in stride. Take it in stride. Because it's only in keeping stride that I go from deposit to deposit, from grace to grace, from strength to strength, and finally appear before God as Zion. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Where has bitterness ever made anybody satisfied? Do you know anybody who, who turned bitter and got, got the reward they were looking for? And I can do that on a daily basis. <clears throat> Live in constant tension and frustration with the way life goes. That's not my way. Or I can say, give us this day our daily bread. 
Give me this day the deposit I need. Your grace is not excessive, but it is sufficient, God. And if it feels like it's running low, that's an invitation to humility. Lord, help me. Amen. And I feel it this morning. I feel it right now in my heart. I feel the grace of God that appears to all men. It's not selective. It's not partial. It doesn't show up for that guy and leave you out. It appears for all men. And it invites you to overcome that disgruntlement. Amen. That grating, grinding, dry frustration inside. Amen. Amen. I want to press into the grace of God. Amen. The grace that saves us. The grace that empowers us. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord Jesus, God.